0: Welcome back to Talk Evidence, your monthly roundup of the world of EBM. And I'm staging a little takeover this week. We're not doing the usual start stop or anything. We're going to talk about coronavirus because I live in Brighton, which, uh, if you're outside the UK, you might not know, but seems to be the epicenter of uh, coronavirus infection in the UK. We have doctor surgeries cut. shut we have schools being shut we have people being quarantined so i want to know what is the evidence about how this is spreading um what the virus is and uh maybe treatment as well uh as always i'm joined uh by our two favorite ebm nerds we've got carl hennigan and helen mcdonald carl can I get you to introduce
1: yourself? Yes, hi, I am Editor-in-Chief of BMJ Evidence-Based Medicine, Professor of EBM at the University of Carl Oxford Hennigan and a GP.
0: And Helen, and, uh, Carl, can you're can joining you us from yourself?
1: Yes, hi, I am Editor-in-Chief of BMJ Evidence-Based Medicine, Professor of EBM at the University of Oxford and a GP.
0: And uh, Helen, you're joining us from Bath today because uh, you are isolated, but not with coronavirus, it's chickenpox. Can I get you to introduce yourself?
2: Yes, I'm Helen MacDonald, the UK Research Editor for the BMJ.
0: If we think about coronavirus from, a, from our nerdy EBM point of view, this is a really interesting time. This is a brand new virus that we don't know anything about, really. And, and so that evidence kind of ecosystem we talk about is, is just evolving at this point.
1: I agree. This is a very interesting time in the world of evidence-based medicine. As we're going to hear on the program, you're going to have evidence from case reports. You're going to have evidence from a Cochrane review with case control studies and cohort studies, what we call low quality evidence. We're going to hear about rapid reviews of evidence. We're going to look at model reproduction numbers, epidemiology of infection and case fatality rates, and all about how to do randomised trials and what's needed in things like hand washing. The whole array of evidence, which is interesting and helps us think about this important public health issue right now coronavirus.
0: Mm, This might be the one time we hear Carl Hannigan telling us to go and read uh, a case report in the NEJM.
1: Well not only that what's really interesting and this is important in pandemics is a real need to make this stuff available rapidly. And to make it open access, so people can actually use it and read it and interpret it in what is a fast-moving, emergent infection.
0: Mm. And Helen, um, you know, what kind of evidence are you particularly interested in in you know this emerging world? I
2: think I'm most interested in just thinking about having a totally blank page that we really knew nothing about this virus, about how it transmits, about what symptoms people have about how to prevent it, about how to treat it. It seems like we, we didn't know anything a couple of months ago. And I'm, I'd be really interested to hear from an infectious disease epidemiologist about how you begin to piece together all of these emerging pieces of evidence into, into a picture.
0: So we've heard from some interesting people Uh, from Imperial. We've got Peter Openshaw, who's a professor of experimental medicine. Wendy Barkley, who's head of the Department of Infectious Diseases there. Uh, And Raina McIntyre, who's a professor of infectious diseases and epidemiology down in Sydney. Uh, We're going to go through some things around, as Carl said, prevention about what is this virus some things we might do to to prevent spread, and then if that's not so effective, what do we know about treatment? Um, But before all of that, I suppose uh, we should get an overview from an expert who knows.
3: I'm Raina McIntyre. I'm Professor of Global Biosecurity at the Kirby Institute, University of New South Wales, Australia. I study infectious diseases, particularly emerging infectious diseases, vaccine-preventable diseases, and um, issues around biosecurity, pandemic preparedness. It is really important to get a good evidence base for a number of different parameters around COVID-19. One is to understand the transmission because understanding transmission is what we need to help contain the disease and prevent it. And there's still a lot of uncertainty about, for example, how much asymptomatic transmission is happening. So I think better understanding the transmission dynamics and getting all those parameters that we're interested in, like the R0, the reproductive number, et cetera, properly estimated. Then obviously we need um, data on the immune response, the immunology of the virus. There are, is, is data around SARS and MERS coronavirus, which is helpful, but um, we need to understand the immunology so that we can develop the vaccines. Um, Then, of course, we need to understand the clinical picture and the treatment. There's um, antiretroviral drugs that are used for HIV treatment, which were used in SARS. um, But systematic reviews did not show evidence of efficacy um, from SARS. So we need to see the clinical trials emerge so we can actually assess the efficacy of these therapeutic options. Because unlike SARS and MERS coronavirus, this is much more widespread. In two months, um, you know, the number of cases and deaths has been exceeded from what SARS took about eight months to accrue. So um, the scale of this may be much bigger and um, understanding the treatments is going to be really important.
0: So what is... Uh, this novel coronavirus. Um, you too, you must have studied some virology at uh, medical school. I did as a biochemistry undergrad, but I can't really remember <laughs> much about it. Um, do you guys know anything about it?
1: Well, I know a little bit, but you could do. we could do with some expert help on this aspect. But we're talking about a group of viruses that is out there already. And the corona is that sort of, Uh, Corona that exists around the sun, where you see these these proteins that exist on the surface and give you this corona effect. And they are viruses that affect issues like the common cold are coronaviruses. But then you get these very serious ones that are the new outbreaks that come from animals. And we've had SARS, the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. And we've had this MERS, the Middle Eastern Respiratory syndromes, which have been outbreaks of the coronavirus. And then this one, this new one, coronavirus 19, which is emerged, we think, in Wuhan in China, where it's come from animals to humans and then it gets into humans from direct transmission between individuals
0: so coronaviruses as you say cause a cold but um that's not what's happening here so maybe we should go to um our first expert talking a little bit about some of the pathogenesis of this this new outbreak and so this is peter openshaw and he's a professor of experimental medicine at imperial college london and his his areas of interest is respiratory virus.
4: So in terms of what we know about the pathogenesis of this disease, it's very early days. But I think, you know, we can, from what we know about other severe infections, we can, we can begin to speculate. And we think that what happens initially is that the virus must enter through the epithelium. Uh, we're assuming through the respiratory epithelium, but it's possible also that it might get in through the gastrointestinal tract. We know that many coronaviruses have dual um, uh, tropism, both for the respiratory and the gastrointestinal epithelium. In some of these cases, there is a bit of diarrhoea, and maybe even in those without diarrhoea, there may be secretion of virus by the stool. So we're assuming that there is a bit of interplay between the gastrointestinal and the respiratory tract. So the virus gets in. It starts to multiply in the absence of any sort of um, initial host defence because there doesn't seem to be any cross-reactivity between the known human coronaviruses to which we are all exposed as common cold agents um, and this novel coronavirus. So once it gets in, it multiplies, and probably that initial phase is mostly controlled by the innate immune response because there is no specific immunity in terms of B cells, T cells. So I'm speculating here, but What we saw in our very detailed analysis of um, pandemic H1N1 in 2009-2010 via the Mosaic study, which was a national study which I led on here from, from Imperial, we saw an initial phase when the response was more or less an antiviral response with interferon and so on. That then diminished after a few days and was replaced by a very powerful inflammatory response in those with more severe disease. And that inflammation, as I say, was quite nonspecific. It included a lot of different cytokines. It included cells migrating into the site of infection and releasing their um, their mediators, the cytokines, the chemokines, and a, an outpouring of many, many mediators, including things like tumor necrosis factor IL-6, um, IL-1, you know, you name it, it comes out into the secretions and into the blood. So that's the sort of cytokine storm, the immunological storm phase. And that was much more severe in those who went on to have, uh, to have bad disease and need ventilating. What I'm speculating is that the deterioration that we're seeing after the initial relatively mild phase, res- it reflects the cutting in of that innate powerful immune response which is pro-inflammatory and which maybe is appearing at a time when there's still virus there and there is a sort of immunological overreaction which causes the ARDS, the inflammation of the lungs that we see on chest X-ray and on CT scan. That probably reflects this immunological hyperreactivity, which is uh, contributing to the disease at that stage. In this particular case, there seem to be hints that the cardiovascular dis- system is affected later in the disease in some of the patients with severe, um, severe disease, severe infections. We don't know why this is. We do know that the virus gets in via the same receptor as SARS, which is the ACE2 receptor. There may be other co-receptors, but this appears to be one of the main ones. And that, of course, angiotensin-converting enzyme is involved in the control of blood pressure the patients with severe disease sometimes are actually slightly hypertensive rather than hypotensive. Often patients with severe illness are hypotensive. Some of these have a slight rise in blood pressure. And we don't know whether there is some sort of inflammation process going on in the heart. It could be a myocarditis or even an end arteritis. We don't know. Um, And that could be related to the virus actually reaching the heart tissue and might be involved in some of, some of the deaths. We know that patients who've been put on ECMO, so who are extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, um, in order to support them through the respiratory failure, sometimes they die regardless and perhaps that could reflect myocardial um, um, if, um, infection with the virus. This is all speculation. We don't know yet and we're really waiting for detailed studies where the virus is being Sought in the in the heart and in other tissues as well.
1: There's a lot of words in there and a lot of thoughts, but what he's saying is, let's just summarise, he's saying this can enter through the lungs, can enter through the guts. So you get this initial viral response where you are mild symptoms, but not everybody, but some people will have the immune system goes into an ovary reaction, you get this cytokine storm, and they're the people you really worry about because they can end up on intensive care units and require ventilation, and this thing called, he said, ARDS, which is Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome, But beyond that, there's also this issue with these ACE2 receptors, which causes you to have hypertension. And you can also have heart problems, which can then lead to some of the deaths if that happens.
0: Yeah, I
2: think it's interesting to think of um, the kind of symptom footprint, isn't it? If you are a GP, perhaps sitting in your surgery and you might get somebody walk in with some of these milder symptoms, presumably to begin with, um, how you might begin differentiating that from another sort of short-lived normal viral illness and something which i have noticed when people have been describing the symptoms has been fever and cough and they seem to have talked less about nasal symptoms and that made me think a bit like you have in your mind when you see people with a sore throat and you're trying to work out whether it, it might be a bacterial infection and you look for the absence of a cough almost i wondered here whether there's any information emerging from the case report in um, NEJM or in some of the other case series around how you might untangle this infection from another.
1: Well, I think that's interesting because I think you, as you describe what you're describing and what we've heard, this could be any viral infection, very similar to influenza. But there is this issue that the case report reports on days two, three, a sort of subjective fever. And and, and when he presented to the emergency services, his fever fever was only 37.2 at that point. And actually, Mm -hmm. although they tested him for coronavirus, nobody really thought about it. And the case had only presented because of travel and the public health guidance. But on day five, the temperature spiked to 39 degrees. And that's, that's where it we interesting, get interesting.
2: So the fever might not even be at the start.
1: Yeah, uh, mm. the cough was more at the start; was there present from day one. Fatigue mm. was there at day one too, very similar to influenza. There was a little bit of nausea, vomiting, but that got better very quickly. And you're right. In fact, the rhinorrhea in the case report came at the very end of the the case. And it was in this middle from about day 5 to about day 11 where you've got this potential acute respiratory distress syndrome going on where you're more at risk of having this problem. And he had some oxygen support at that time in hospital. They also tried an array of antibiotics which were, you know, uh, concerned whether there was a secondary infection going on. But by day 12, his temperature returned to normal. And then by day 15, with the support measures, it was back to normal.
0: I suppose um, what something like you know an individual case study or a case series aren't going to give us information about is things about the the infectiousness of the virus and how it's going to maybe transmit into other people as well, which I suppose must be essential you know, information too. Oh, so
1: this is really interesting issues. You're now getting into this concept of the reproduction number, and the reproduction number is. Basically, the expected number of a case is generated by one case in the population. So if it was a reproduction number of one, that means if I had the infection, I would give it to one other person. Now, one of the things about what we're looking at with the coronavirus is it's looking like it's around about um, approaching about a reproduction number of three. So for every one case, you're giving it to three people. And what you need to do is to reduce that reproduction number below one to make sure, and if you do that, then the virus will die out. Now, just to say there was an interesting paper in the Annals of Internal Medicine that modelled the reproduction number and said, what's going on in Wuhan? And you know in Wuhan you're getting these pictures of isolation, people wearing masks, not being allowed to go out. But the model is it's still about 1.5 with all of them activities going on. Mm. Therefore, that tells you that, in effect, what's happening is it's going to continue to spread.
0: And um, there's lots of things that can affect, you know, what that reproduction number is, virological and and things. And I think that's something that um, we should hand over to a virologist. So uh, I spoke to Wendy Barkley, who's head of the Department of Infectious Disease at Imperial and a virologist, um, to to talk about the transmission spread of it.
5: So each respiratory virus transmits between people with a different efficiency. And there are many, many different factors that play into that. So from one side, it's the virus. So it's about how stable is the virus in the environment and in the air? Physically speaking, does it fall apart uh, when, you, when it's warmer? Um, does it sit in droplets uh, which are falling more rapidly onto the ground, etc.? Also, what receptor does the virus utilise to bind and enter cells when when it's received by the recipient? So are those receptors abundantly expressed on the upper respiratory tract of the recipient, in which case we would expect very efficient nose-to-nose transmission? Or are they only present in the deep lung, in which case the virus really has to be an aerosol to get down into the small airways and, and reach the receptors? So that plays into it as well. How does the virus fare with human mucus, which is an innate barrier which overlies many of the ciliated epithelium, which are the target? Can the virus find its way through the mucus, or is it rather rapidly expelled from the body? So all of those physical features of the virus, when it first emerges from an animal and finds its way into humans, are going to determine the early r naught. But the r naught, the number of people that one infected person infects, is also determined by all kinds of other things which are not really to do with the virus. So the host, all right, how susceptible is the host? Has the host ever seen uh, anything like this virus before which will modify how much shedding there is by one host in, in terms of passing virus on to another? How dense are the hosts? that are susceptible here? Are they all living in very dense conditions or are they spread out? What age are the more susceptible hosts and the people who are involved in transmission? So all of those parameters about hosts will also feed into the overall transmission of the virus at any one stage. And both of those things, both the host side and the virus side, change as time goes by as does the environment as well. So maybe the virus is more transmissible on a hot day than a cold day or the other way around. That all changes as well, as does human behaviour with environmental changes. So we can expect the dynamics, if you like, of the virus to change as the epidemic proceeds, partly driven by host changes, perhaps also driven by some evolutionary changes in the virus.
0: And I suppose that takes us on to prevention, and masks is the thing that might be a solution. We've had reports that in China healthcare staff are finding it hard to get masks because they're being stockpiled by uh, by everyone else there. But it's really interesting about that, because I spoke to Raina McIntyre, who's a professor of infectious diseases epidemiology in Sydney, and who's actually carried out you know various RCTs into, uh, into face masks. Um, and she had a uh, Something interesting to say on people's actual use of them?
3: Sure. So, we did a study where we identified children with influenza like illness uh, and we then randomized their families to use surgical masks, P2 respirators, or no masks and followed them up um, for symptom development in the parents and did virological testing on the kids and the parents. And by intention-to-treat analysis, which is just analysing it according to the arms to which it was randomised without looking at whether they actually complied or not, there was no effectiveness. However, we found that a lot of parents didn't comply with using the masks. They were meant to wear it every time they were in the same room as the child that was sick, but a lot of parents just didn't do it. They, They felt uncomfortable doing it. But if you just took the ones who did wear it, it was efficacious, highly efficacious. So if you do wear it, then um, it will protect you from getting infected from another family
0: member. So I suppose that's a note of caution when we're, we're thinking about, you know, public control measures, that there's a, a big gap between, you know, what happens in the lab and the uh, what happens in the wild?
1: Well, there are two things that are really interesting about that. The first is to say this was an intervention targeted at children. And one of the issues about respiratory infections is all the interventions when they have the greatest effect when they're targeted at children, because if it gets out there in the wild, if you like, beyond Brighton and the epicentre, then what happens is children act as a reservoir for infection. And there are two things that that make children so- so great as as spreaders of infection, one is their social habits. children you know stick their hair together, we cuddle them, we kiss them, so we're going to transmit infection. but then the second thing about children is their cleaning habits tend to be a bit dire, <laughs> and so that combination means they become the infection reservoir, if you like, and once it's in children, we've got these problems so trying to get interventions targeted at children when it's out there are really important
2: I think it's quite interesting speaking as someone who has um, small children in my house I think I would find it quite hard to um, wear a mask when you're sort of getting up in the night or dosing someone with medication or just giving them Mm -hmm. a, a cuddle but it does give me a bit of hope that study because it did suggest that the masks and I don't know what particular type it was did work and I wonder if people's attitudes to wearing a mask if they were out in public for example where they weren't having to be a sort of primary caregiver for someone who's infected um, who needs help and support might be a bit different
0: and actually she um she did mention that in in china for example people after the SARS outbreak that wearing masks became much more normalized and people were more likely to do it but Carl do we know which kind of mask is most effective
1: so it's interesting i mean the the evidence in this area is right is it tends to be a dearth there's been a few randomized trials recently but the Cochrane review here on physical interventions to interrupt or reduce the spread of respiratory viruses is first to say quite old it's not been updated since 2011 but in there there are a mixture of case control and cohort studies And in there, there are case control studies that have looked at mask wearing and they looked at two types of masks, surgical masks and these N95 respirators, which cost more money. And you can find them available at the moment on the web, but the price is going up. But what's interesting about them is both of them across eight studies generally led to about a two thirds reduction in infectivity. But also to say that most of them studies were combined with frequent, the word is frequent, hand washing. And so teasing the different bits out can be difficult sometimes. So I think if you're going to wear a mask, you've also got to do the frequent hand washing. Yeah. And then combined frequent were,
2: hand washing, then, Carl? Well, generally I mean in the
1: frequent. studies, it's at least five times a day. And one it of the things too is much. no, but one of the things is some people with soap, and that is reported in some of the studies, might find that an irritant because of certain allergies and eczema. So some people do report uh, them irritants. Also, the thing about the n 5 respirator masks is, they although they, I said they were more expensive, people reported them as more uncomfortable, and they were more irritated to the skin. And so that comes back to this point about what she said. A really important point is this intention to treat analysis. If you look at everybody, then you might not find an effect. But if you look at what's called the PER protocol, the people who actually keep the mask on, you get these reductions, which are important reductions in in slowing down the spread.
0: Mm. And uh, as Peter said as well, we know that the, this virus is transmitted you know, um, via touch and potentially you know, through your respiratory system, but also gastrointestinally. So, uh, you know, if you are on public transport and you've got a respirator on, but you're adjusting it and touching your face because it's uncomfortable, then, you know, that's a potential transmission route as well.
1: So I think it's interesting as well. I mean, the Cochrane review is very interesting because I think it does guide what's going on here. There are three important implications for practice that they highlight. First is, as I've said, the frequent hand washing. And they say with or without adjunct antiseptic, antiseptic, antiseptic. So it's okay to use soap. So that's the first thing. The second is barrier measures such as gloves, gowns and masks with filtration apparatus that's the sort of what you'll see in the hospitals when you've got everybody completely gowned up now all together that gets you about a 90% reduction them two measures so that's why you'll see in the hospitals people taking a combination of them but the third one is with a suspicion suspicious diagnosis isolation of likely cases and that's what we're seeing right now that can only work if you really put all three together And somehow we drive down the infection so it doesn't get out there in the public and particularly in children.
0: Carl, how good is the evidence that's in that cochrane infuse? You said it's quite sparse and it's... uh...
1: Well, look, if this was a drug, we wouldn't be putting this into routine practice because the quality of the evidence here is very poor. And I think it's because one of the things is we haven't really thought about this and probably till about 2009 with the swine flu epidemic that emerged, pandemic, sorry, that emerged... And now it's becoming really important to understand some of these features. And we have seen certain information and trials come out. I've seen trying to educate people through the Internet to see if that helps. And there was a publication about five years ago in The Lancet in trying to use strategies to educate the public to do these features. But generally, we only think about them now. And in about a few months' time, if this has gone away, it will go in the basket again and disappear, won't it? And it will be put away And so there tends to be poor quality evidence informed by case control and cohort studies and a complete lack of randomised trials.
0: Yeah, well, I actually spoke to to Raina about that as well. And uh, she has some thoughts on the difficulty of doing these kind of trials.
3: Yeah, they're actually really difficult uh, trials to do. And the other point is we, in medicine in general, we focus very heavily on drugs and vaccines, on products, on on um, pharmaceutical products. And there's been much less research in general across the board on non-pharmaceutical interventions. We started the very first face mask trial in 2006. The, another group in Hong Kong started one soon after. At that time, it was the peak of pandemic planning around the fears of H5N1 turning into a pandemic. And so a lot of people were interested in knowing the actual efficacy of masks. But until that point, there'd never been a randomized controlled clinical trial. Uh, They are really difficult trials to conduct because, you know, unlike doing a trial to see if your blood pressure is low, gets lower on on the drugs. You have to actually measure infection outcomes and the intervention itself can affect other people because of contagion. So in a closed setting like a household or a hospital ward, putting a mask on a few people can actually prevent infection in more than just the person who's using the intervention. Um, So you have to, the design of such studies is really difficult. The measuring the outcomes is difficult. They're complex studies
0: to do, which is
3: Probably another reason why um, nobody had done
0: them. So, this is a good point to start talking about treatment. And again, we are going to go back to our two experts on this. We have Peter Openshaw, Professor of Experimental Medicine, and Wendy Barclay, Head of the Department of Infectious Disease, both at Imperial College London. So in terms of
4: treatments, I think it's
0: very important to
4: emphasise the difference between somebody with mild illness, which we hope is going to be the majority, and those who may actually need more advanced treatment in hospital or in intensive care. The initial disease is, tends to be quite mild, and there, you know, self-isolation, paracetamol, ibuprofen, you know, sleeping it off, the usual sort of things that people do when they feel a bit under the weather, is all you need. And there's no evidence that anything on top of that is going to be beneficial. So at the moment there's no proven antiviral. Antibiotics are of no help at all. And so that's about it. In those that need hospitalisation, the treatment is supportive care and avoiding things that do harm. I think most importantly. There were studies in the SARS outbreak where patients were given very high dose steroids in some hospitals, not given steroids at all in others, sometimes given a bit of steroids in a third. You know, there was a complete spectrum of opinion about whether steroids helped. I would say generally the experience from that outbreak was that steroids were not helpful and indeed were causing harm, particularly in the very, very high doses that were being used by some. So I would say, avoid steroids unless there's a specific indication for steroids. Almost all the patients that have been reported have been put on antibiotics. That probably is not a good thing, but it's irresistible as a clinician, when you're faced with somebody with mnemonic changes on the chest, X-ray, a fever, a cough. you know who is going to withhold the antibiotics? However, it's perfectly possible that the antibiotics are counterproductive. Um, so, I would, I would suggest that the decision to use antibiotics should be care- taken carefully. Obviously, the symptomatic treatments with paracetamol, acetaminophen, to bring down the fever seems very reasonable, but in some common colds, there's a bit of evidence that using a lot of those sort of antipyretic drugs can actually mean that the virus load stays higher for longer. So, you know, even that, maybe there isn't such a strong evidence base.
5: Unfortunately, there are no antiviral drugs licensed specifically for the treatment of coronavirus infections at the moment. There are some likely candidates which can be tested quite quickly in clinical trials. For example, some of the drugs that we currently use against HIV target the protease enzymes of HIV. And because coronaviruses also express a number of proteases in their replication cycle, there is some thought that the protease inhibitors that were originally developed for HIV may be effective against some of the coronaviruses. And indeed, some early preclinical work with the MERS virus, which is another coronavirus that's emerged from animals into humans in in the last decade, those trials or those preclinical trials do suggest that these HIV protease inhibitors might be worth trialling. So that's one set of drugs. There's other drugs that we would think of using against RNA viruses are the nucleoside analogs. So these are like small bases that get incorporated into the growing strand of the new RNA that's being synthesised by the virus. And when they get incorporated, they either terminate the chain or they make a mistake. And you get mutation over and above the the regulated rate that the virus can tolerate. There is a new one of those which looks effective against coronaviruses. Interestingly, many of the nucleoside analogues that have been developed for other viruses don't work against the coronaviruses. And remember that that might be because the coronaviruses encode their own proofreading activity to stop themselves making mistakes. But some of the nucleoside analogues do appear to be effective enough against coronavirus replication that they they might work. And again, in preclinical trials, Uh, one particular drug, Remdesivir, looks as if it could be working and therefore uh, probably a priority to go into clinical trials.
1: Look, that was really interesting. The first thing is to say Peter Opshaw said experience of use of steroids in SARS, but it's interesting the Lancet produced what I consider as a really important piece of evidence, a, a sort of rapid review, you like, of the evidence that does not support corticosteroid treatment. And in there, there was one study that was about MERS. There were four studies I identified on SARS. They also uh, cited the influenza and increased mortality. That's in a systematic review and a trial on RSV in, in treatment. And basically, across the board, steroids is a bad idea. And I think this is a really useful piece of evidence. That allows you to look at it and think, not just experience, this is an evidence base. Right now, the current best available evidence says, don't use steroids in coronavirus unless it's for another indication, a clear indication, such as asthma or one of the other reasons to use it.
0: Mm. And um, I suppose that seems maybe counterintuitive because, as Peter said right at the beginning of this, you know, this is characterised by a, uh, Mm. a big cytokine storm yeah. you know the kind of thing that you get in sepsis and and we know that helen we've talked before about use of steroids in sepsis which can be uh can be useful so uh yeah well uh, that
2: was a weak recommendation for it and i th- i think probably experts have got to tailor their advice haven't they and that evidence which carl and i guess pointed out probably mean that perhaps perhaps it's less less suitable there
1: Well, look, this is a really good example of evidence-based medicine. In the steroids, there's clinical experience that might say to use steroids, you've got this cytokine storm, you want to reduce the inflammation, steroids do that, but actually it seems like the evidence is showing you it's a bad idea. Whereas in the antibiotic issue... There is, I'm not aware of any evidence that shows you it's beneficial or harmful in a viral infection. We worry that if it's... And what happens there is we worry and you're giving antibiotics when you don't need them and you get the side effects. But what's happening here is people are thinking experience influenza, secondary bacterial infections, hospital-acquired pneumonia, where we're going to treat until we certainly haven't got pneumonia. So what you might see from a clinical experience is people giving 48 hours of antibiotic treatment in the middle of this high temperature awaiting blood cultures and other information that can allow you to then rule out it's a bacterial infection
0: and i suppose that's that's very hard in an emerging disease where we don't know very much about it and things and i suppose that's reflected as well in the uncertainty about you know what antiretrovirals might be useful i mean she was talking about the fact that it's even pre- pre-clinical trial evidence that's that's being discussed there um, just to say,
1: though, it's really interesting. You think, well, there's going to be no evidence here. And, and in, in one of my advisory roles, I'm an advisor to the World Health Organization's International Clinical Trials Registry platform. And Karam, Karamu runs that, sent out a tweet yesterday, and he sent me an email saying, look, we have a novel coronavirus registry. They put all the trials that are ongoing there are currently 81 trials on the platform oh, wow. in recruitment. Right? So that's quite surprising. You think, And the speed at which people are operating is quite something.
2: What kind of treatments are they looking at?
1: So one of the things we can do is there's a whole base of array of treatments that I'd have to go across, but some people are uh, still thinking about low-dose steroids. Some people are using the antiviral treatments, remdesivir, which is a novel antiviral treatment, aerosol inhalation on there. All sorts of uh, studies of of agents, but also some of the early one in prediction systems, so trying to get really good evidence base together quickly and and I think thats that would surprise most people. It certainly surprised me i mean this is within three months of it becoming aware, and probably within about six weeks And we've got eighty one trials on the platform and that number will only grow. And I think that's interesting reassurance that we're starting to get our act together in what we call trial platforms, and people getting some of the the regulatory issues out of the way so we can speed up the translation of evidence, particularly from informative trials.
0: Mm. Now, harking back, as we have done a few times into this, to the, the swine flu pandemic and where we started stockpiling, you know, Tamiflu because that seemed. Like there might have been some evidence of uh, of its use in in reducing the length of time that people were ill for and, and the severity of the disease, and then as Carl knows very well, <laughs> that evidence ended up being less good than than um, that initially thought. So, do you have any ideas about you know actually doing this properly this time, making sure that you know we're testing lots of different things? in a robust way
1: well I think we're starting to get our act together and I think this one is really the the 2009 was a sort of wake up call and then this is a sort of like it's not just a wake up call this is a sort of like call to action and so I think out of this again we'll learn again but we have to now be clearer about actually we have to have these novel agencies platforms ready to go and that will require funding up front for when an infection emerges like this but I think one of the biggest things that drives our, our sort of thinking around this is particularly the case fatality rate. And so one of the things about swine flu is really concerned that this was a pandemic, had high morbidity, but mortality. But actually, the case fatality rate of swine flu was very low, 0.02 percent. So that's incredibly low compared to something like SARS, which was about 9 to 10 percent. Now, the question of what we want to know is, what's the case fatality rate of coronavirus? And this is an incredibly interesting issue. And it it seems like there's some variability depending on the context. So if you go to Wuhan right now, it's about 2%. Now, 2% is very high Mm. if you have a public health emergency and it gets out in the population. But remember, in Wuhan, there are some features. That generally is the people admitted to hospital. They're the ones they're testing. So it might be much higher than expected. And some of the evidence is saying when you bring into all the symptomatic and asymptomatic people together, the case fatality may drop 10 or 100 fold and be somewhere around about 0.2 to 1%. Now, that's where the public health emergency comes in. If you infect hundreds of millions of people, a lot of people are going to die. But actually, the individual risk is still very small. But the public health risk is very large.
0: And obviously that changes the math then on, on how many, how much side effects and whatever else that we're willing to, uh, to tolerate mm-hmm. in uh, any, any medication that we use for it. Um, I mean, after all of this, Helen, do you feel any more assured that you would know what to do if, um, if you were presented with someone who had suspected coronavirus?
2: I think it's still going to be very hard, isn't it, at this early stage to pick out those cases. And I think, for now, it's it's going to be the travel history or or something peripheral in the story like that that I think is going to arouse your suspicion. But I guess once you once it becomes a bit more established, um, and once people are transmitting it within the UK, I think it will become a lot harder.
1: My concern is is that this early phase. Day two to five where you have very little symptoms and I think that's what we've seen in Brighton is you can move around the world quite mm. easy in five days in mm. five days and you turn up and you've mm. infected four or five people and that's where you get this r naught approaching three four and even higher in the asymptomatic people once that happens uh really the rabbit is out of the bag and you have to shift your focus then saying containment's over and and in swine flu that's what happened in effect. It, it, It transmitted so quickly. Then you have to start to move to the supportive measures and trying to understand how you instigate that effectively and have you got enough sort of intensive care beds on board, have you got enough supportive measures available, if particularly if the case fatality rate is about 1%. What I'm hoping here... And my suspicion is it will be much less than 1% because there is a large number of asymptomatic people that inflates a denominator and reduces the case fatality rate. And if it comes down to where we are with swine flu, then generally what will happen is you'll see people who are at high risk, particularly the elderly, people with pre-existing heart problems. But there are some people, seemingly a group of young people, sometimes pregnant women, who seem to be more at risk of these infections and they do require hospitalisation and more supportive measures.
0: I think my big takeaway from it is that the bit about the efficacy of hand washing. I really didn't know that at least five times a day um, massively reduces your risk of respiratory disease. Uh, so,
1: particularly because you're at the epicenter right now in Brighton, well, you should exactly. have that, that should be public <laughs> health number one, not over please wash your hands here, everybody. Let's get on. It's a bit of soap and water five times a day. I think that really is an important message and particularly this is an important within schools and children if they start to become infected.
0: And I think that'd be a nice point to leave that on because this Christmas, if you missed it, we had a study of uh, ways in which we could improve our kids' hand washing and they came up with a little song. And maybe that's a nice thing to play us out with. Perfect.
2: Okay kids, time to wash your hands.
0: Rub your palms between the fingers. Wash the back. Wash the back. Turn the hips around. Scrub the
2: upside down. Thumb attack. Thumb. Attack.